The following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would fine me for if their long arm could ever reach. Hey, do you want to listen to the gist at home on your Alexa? Turns out we at Slate have built a new Alexa skill. We're perfecting it. So what you do is you say, Alexa, enable the gist to enable the skill on your Alexa device, and then you begin playing the show. And to play it after that, you can say, Alexa, play the gist. First enable, then play it just on the Alexa. It's Thursday, January 9th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Maybe our leading thinkers on the right uh, came under a misimpression regarding a category error. It concerned the mourning of Qasem Soleimani. Millions of Iranians stampeding in collective anguish. That is mourning. An American politician noting that it may have been a strategic misstep not to have planned out a major escalation in the world's greatest tinderbox. That is not mourning. That is just thinking. Critically thinking. Still, former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley asserted that uh, uh, Dems grieve in their own way. The only ones that are mourning the loss of Soleimani are our Democrat leadership and our Democrat presidential candidates. And you know, if the former representative to the UN falls into this regrettable, regrettable category error, I'm sure not based on animus, but just based on an honest misreading of her countrymen. But if she does it, well, you know, Doug Collins is going to do it, but worse. But guess what? Surprise, surprise. Nancy Pelosi does it again, and her Democrats fall right in line. One, they're in love with terrorists. We see that. They they mourn Soleimani more than they mourn our gold star families who are the ones who suffered under Amazing. Soleimani. That's a problem. Yes, if there is a political figure widely associated with being callous to Gold Star families, that sure is Nancy Pelosi, not someone else I could think of. Here's a helpful distinction for Haley and Collins. I've been to many funerals. When people mourn, they say things like, he was a good father. She loved gardening. He always had time for his grandchildren. When she left a room, it was a more joyous place than before she entered. Mourners do not say things like, Uncle Jerome's death, though warranted, will destabilize the region. Literally, I have never heard that at a funeral. I have never heard the priest say, God works in mysterious ways. And when we ask ourselves, why did he take Gladys? The answer is, it was justified due to her documented exporting of terrorism. I've never heard that. I've never heard distraught parishioners, well, while it is true he was among the most evil men in the world, we have to think of the second order consequences. Hey, you know what? I just thought of this. When I die, if you're listening to this, um, I'll name you executor right now if you uh, are the third caller. But when I die, please reach out to Doug Collins and ask him not to speak at my funeral. You know what? Please go so far as to dissuade him from paying a shiva call. Yes, those are indeed, those shall be my dying wishes. There is no mourning from any American politician of whom I am aware. No mourning over Soleimani. If he will be missed was even uttered once, it was by the drone pilot who killed him, experiencing a brief moment of self-doubt. No elected official in American life is writing or thinking of any kind of elegy for the person of Soleimani. I do hear a eulogy for tactics, strategy, and foresight, and that is a different thing, and I would say a warranted thing. 
On the show today, I spiel about all the capable men and women of the administration who should be there being capable, but aren't because the president just doesn't care. But first, I mean, now this is the important stuff. Jeopardy is having a multi-day tournament pitting their three greatest players of all time against each other. So I assembled a panel of the three greatest game show losers I know of. One was me, by the way. Another was Lizzie O'Leary. She was a loser on Power Player Week. And Justin Peters, who got up to the quarter million dollar question on who wants to be a millionaire. Let's just leave it at that. He got up to it. Now, I want you to know that our conversation occurred on Tuesday and they have played a game since, maybe two games since, depending on when you listen to this. In this conversation, I think we can truly say the category is fun. For the last couple nights on primetime television and extending it to who knows how long, Jeopardy has, you know Jeopardy, it's a game show, you answer in the form of a question, staged the greatest of all time tournament. And I think this is a case where the contestants really do live up to that title. Brad Rutter, the all-time winningest contestant in Jeopardy history. Ken Jennings, who blazed a trail of glory when they changed the rules to allow people to win for as long as they win. And James Holzhauer all face off in an interestingly formatted and much harder version of your favorite answer and question show. Joining me now are returning champions, or returning champion, Justin Peters, who writes for Slate. He was, well, I'll read you the headline of one of my favorite articles he's ever written. I got a second chance on who wants to be a millionaire. Last year, I became one of the biggest losers in game show history. Going back was terrifying. Justin knows game shows. Hello, Justin. It's me. (laughs) And Lizzie O'Leary, who is the host of Slate's podcast, What Next TBD, an old friend of mine and a Jeopardy contestant. Hello, Lizzie. Hello, Mike. I'm a Jeopardy contestant, too. Yeah, but you are on real Jeopardy. <laughs> real Jeopardy. Honest to God, civilian Jeopardy. Tell me about your Jeopardiness. I was on Washington Power Player Jeopardy uh-huh. in 2012. That's a thing? It's a thing. I don't know if it's still a thing, but it was a thing. It's like celebrity Jeopardy, but for politics and media people? Uh-huh. So if Washington is like Hollywood, but for ugly people, what's Power Player Jeopardy? Jeopardy, but for ugly people? <laughs> no, you were on it. You're better looking than almost everyone else on Jeopardy. Did this and air wh- on television? It aired on television, yeah. Yeah, it did, in, in 2012. And you play, who were your opponents? I played against Chris Matthews and Robert Gibbs. Now, Chris Matthews doesn't like anyone else to get a word in edgewise, so did that affect gameplay? I mean, I think it affected the banter with Alex at and, the beginning. And Gibbs, he's a former White House- Obama press secretary. Yeah, yeah. press yeah. secretary. He's pretty okay. smart. He seems smart. He is a smart guy. And how did your game go? I want to be clear that going into final Jeopardy- I was winning by a lot. Me too. So <laughs> and here we stand. On, on, the, on the, the measurements that matter. Yeah. I was winning. I may not have the best betting strategy. Fine. Did you get Final Jeopardy right? And we all got it wrong. Oh. And oh. I had like a slightly more aggressive bet than Robert, who like bet very little, some dinky amount. No, like, but that might have been the best betting strategy because you had to cover if he went all in, right? right? And right. he just so had I, to eke past you. Exactly. So in that case, actually, the person in second place will almost always have the advantage. Yeah, I had to cover like what if he goes all in and gets to this point, right, blah, right. blah, 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 blah. Okay. And just for like one real... I don't know, horrible footnote. The answer 
Well, yes, the question, yes. the question was, who is Bill Cosby? We all whiffed it. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the, yeah. what was the question? The, you mean the answer? Yeah. I don't know what I mean. This celebrity has won an Emmy, the Mark Twain Prize, and the Spingarn Medal. Right. Updated Ooh, to today in the a survey. Spingarn Medal. <laughs> Given by the NAACP, we all look like a bunch of really clueless white people, which we were. <laughs> well, um, if you updated for today and is now serving, you know, 10 to 30 in a Philadelphia correctional institution, you exactly. would have gotten it. Yeah, yeah right. it was almost so, unfair. Yeah. And Justin, do you watch Jeopardy all the time? Uh, yeah, as much as I can, given yeah. that I'm a man who doesn't own a TV. But <laughs> <laughs> Minor restrictions. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Were you guys excited for this show? So exciting. What about it? It's just such a good idea. Um, I mean, Jeopardy occupies a very unique place in the sort of pantheon of game shows and its champions more so than literally any other game show are sort of known. People know them. James Holzhauer threw out the first pitch at Wrigley Field last year. Um, So it is just a cool idea to take the three quantifiably most successful players in the show's history and pit them against each other. Yeah. And also they do tournaments of champions and tournaments of all time champions. And you could say it's like the rock band who keeps claiming that they're never touring again and then does. But with Alex Trebek having pancreatic cancer, this is going to come to an end. And sadly, it's going to come to an end fairly soon. So when they say this is the greatest of all time champion, this is the greatest of all time. It is. Like, that's not hype. It is. It is. They were all wearing purple ribbons. Is that a pancreatic cancer? That's for him. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Alex Trebek. I understand that he, I have critiqued him over the years. I think that especially in the Q&A sections, I mean, Lizzie, you and I do Q&As. I mean, he's a game show host. He's not an interviewer. And some, he do, it comes across that he doesn't care with his two go-to sentiments, which are good for you. And oh, I'm not going there. Says that one a lot. <laughs> so yeah, I understand like what he does is a skill and he's obviously good at it. But the fact that he is, you know, battled cancer and came back from it and there's this all, this whole outpouring of love, I think it's deserved. I can't, I can't find fault in that Jeopardy fans are loving and miss already missing Alex Trebek. Yeah, no, not at all. I think it's okay. I'm good with that. Justin, do you think Trebek does is a you know great game show host or hosts a great game show? I mean, he in terms of Jeopardy, at least, you don't have much to compare him against, right? Or you know? Fleming. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> before my time. Yeah. But I, I think you know, Trebek is iconic. And, you know, I grant you that he is a lackadaisical interviewer of contestants. I would submit, though, that if it were my job to do 15, you know, uh, interviews, little interviews per day over 40 years, you will probably come to realize that everyone's story is basically exactly the same. And I would probably have lost interest uh, around the same time uh, that he did. Now, I don't know how they did it for uh, Power Player Jeopardy, but for Civilian Jeopardy, the producers were really involved in the little anecdotes and they say, write up three and we'll see which Alex likes. Alex, you know, himself picks one. That's obviously a very important part of their process. How do they do it with you? Well, did you have a fluffer? I think I did, yes. Like a fake Alex who comes out and runs you through how the questions go and how the buzzer works and all that stuff? I didn't didn't call him the fluffer, but yeah, 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 we had a fluffer. I was like, oh man, they don't bring Alex out until the really important moments. It's pretty important. Yeah, no, we did have to like get our little anecdotes. And and I do think that 
Look, I could be coloring this with my memory, but I'm pretty sure that Chris Matthews went on a little bit, and Alex was really? like, uh-huh, okay, great, thanks. <laughs> Maybe you're thinking of every episode of the Chris Matthews show, Hardball. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Perhaps you've heard of me, television's Chris Matthews. That's it. That's my anecdote. We did. We all had a gimme category, and his was Kennedy's. Uh-huh. <laughs> Mine was yoga. It's like, I can do these. Those little stories, though, that is literally the one place in the show where the producers of the show have the opportunity to show some of their own flair because you literally cannot sort of rig the outcome of the show, but you can sort of compete against the rest of the producers to show that your contestant, the person you are shepherding on the show, can make good, interesting television within the 20 seconds uh, they have available to do it. I do think the another place that producers can, you know, have an input is the writing of the clues. And this is this might be weird and a little conspiratorial. I think there was a little hashtag resistance in primetime going on. There was a reference to Ukraine was an answer. Debbie Dingle was an answer. Okay, maybe this was recorded Actually, it was, before. It was Dingle. Was it was the Dingle answer. because it referenced it was Debbie both Dingle. John yes. and Debbie. I think Michael. maybe they're trying to say something. Wow, you think they were secretly planting I little resistance? Maybe because this is a big red state, blue state, everyone united television experience. Wow, the question, the question writers of Jeopardy are going to save America. What I think a, that's going to be it. Who saw that coming? I'm sure it was all written before the whole uh, Dingles looking up from hell kerfuffle. Also, probably another another insight or observation into Alex and his importance. He he irked me in the past and I was doing some self-examination and saying, you know, I am going to miss him. Is that just my humanity feeling for the guy because he's going through uh, a hard time with a hard disease. But also, I do think that he represents something, which is the monoculture. And in many ways, I bemoan the passing of the monoculture. We used to have these shared touchstones and we don't anymore. But Jeopardy is one of them. And I really do think it crosses a lot of different demographic lines. Okay, maybe it's mostly white people and maybe it's more men than women, although I don't quite know about that. And it's a little more old than young. But in terms of Republican and Democrat, it probably very much crosses lines. And just in terms of everyone knowing Jeopardy and having an opinion about Alex Trebek and it being on the equivalent of uh, primetime net broadcast network. These are all hallmarks of uh, a time from 35 years ago when Jeopardy started that we don't have anymore. So I, I, I'm a little mournful of that too. No, I understand that. I mean, it's a, like it's a little Don Draper of you, but also I don't think I've ever heard from as many random relatives who I know have never read a single story I've written or listened to a show or anything. We're like, you were on Jeopardy. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it does. It, it its tentacles are are long. After you lost on Jeopardy, Lizzie, did you did you find it hard to watch Jeopardy? Because I did. It was it was hard to watch. Although the thing is, we filmed all of ours in a day, so I got to watch the other power player episodes. Like I was like, I want to watch Thomas Friedman go down, uh-huh. and he did. <laughs> oh. The olive tree and the Lexus. He, he actually cited, uh, it was like early on, it was like, I wrote a book called From Beirut to Jerusalem. And the other contestants were like, uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> and Wolf Blitzer, was that your year? That was not my year. <laughs> that was some Jeopardy ignominy. He was legitimate celebrity Jeopardy, though, right? It oh, wasn't just oh, Washington. Oh, it wasn't Power just Washington. Yeah. Like, well, he's, he crosses many barriers. I mean, he's both. Barriers. He is both. Yeah, but he is both. 
Like, <laughs> let me just acknowledge the shade you just threw on Lizzie. No, Legitimate I mean, deserved, <laughs> like utterly deserved. I, I feel like, like we're all friends here. We can all acknowledge. And that I there's... have, I have said this before. I wasn't even a Washington Power player. I like I said to some magazine, like it was totally corporate softball. Like, oh God, we need another chick. <laughs> I was like, get her. Uh, so Wolf. Wolf. It. All I will say is that. I worked for CNN at the time, and people in the office were like, hey, maybe don't talk to Wolf about the fact that you're going on Jeopardy, because it wasn't pleasant for him. Wolf wound up like minus 4,000 or something. It became, it's like a legendary meme. Whenever Wolf does something online, someone surfaces that dollar amount or negative dollar amount. He's really nice. He has a good sense of humor. It just wasn't his thing. There's a case to be made that Wolf Blitzer is actually the biggest loser in Jeopardy history because he didn't lose any money per se, but the reputational loss he incurred by showing his ass on... (laughs) Jeopardy for the entire world is incalculable. Maybe he was bad at the buzzer. Andy Richter had $39,000 at the end of that game. So that also factors in. It's hard to go up against a buzzsaw like Andy Richter. I mean, he was in Cabin Boy. He knows things. (laughs) All right. So coming into this, I'll tell you what I thought about it. I was excited. I heard about what the format would be, which is sort of two combined games. And then the winner of each day or each night in prime time would win a match. That seemed cool to me. But I was very much much wondering about how hard they would pitch the questions. You know, I kind of wanted it so that I knew, I know when in playing regular Jeopardy, I don't know three or four questions, maybe one or two questions in this single round and three or four or two or three in the double round. I wanted about not to know about half the questions and I was satisfied. I thought they did a great job. What do you think, Lizzie? The questions were hard. Yeah. I, they, they were, there were these like rhyming ones that I totally missed that Ken Jennings was hitting out of the park. And then there was the Shakespeare category where the quotes were like, hello. <laughs> and you had to say what play it was from. Famous Shakespeare quote, hello. <laughs> like, I was sitting with my husband, a theater director, who was like, I don't know what that is. I, <laughs> I staged that and committed it to memory. Right. Coriolanus, they said hello, but in Mark Antony. Um, and so what do you think, J- Justin? Were uh, the, the questions yeah, well I mean, written and well constructed? Look, when you have someone like Brad Rutter, who is sort of by, you know, just common acclaim, one of the best trivia players in the world and the biggest money winner in Jeopardy history, have him whiffing on Daily Devils like that. You know, that's, yeah, yeah, Brad, Brad, Brad. I mean, like, it's satisfying to see these people who would sort of kick my ass in any trivia contest, you know, making what appear to be like mistakes on camera. Do you guys have a prediction of who's going to take this thing? While I enjoy James's like casual style, like I like a dude who just like rolls in a Henley, I'm going Ken. Uh huh. Rudder. Rudder's the best. Come on. Rudder's the best. I'm taking the dark horse here. Rudder is the best. Rudder has beat Ken Jennings in every single time they've met up in like tournament play. Unlearned League, the uh, super secret online trivia league for uh, trivia dorks. Trivia dorks. Bingo. Um, Brad Rudder has a better sort of uh, average uh, seasonally than uh, Ken Jennings does. Um, I'm, my money's on Brad. Does everyone know who Brad Rudder and Ken Jennings are? I mean, do they play as themselves? Oh, yeah. It's Rudder B and Jennings K. <laughs> hey, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Are they in the same? Does it make me terribly vanilla that I'm picking Ken? <laughs> well, he's terrible. He's more vanilla than you are. So by comparison. 
No, it, it's a smart choice. <laughs> Jennings is like an all-time great. They my, are. My theory was, and you know, we're recording this, as I said at the top, and I will, we're recording this only after the first show. And so it would be smart to pick Ken. He's a third of the way there. No one else is. I still think it's going to be James. I think he's a little younger. I think that he showed good buzzer skills. Yeah. I mean, obviously. I did see Ken flailing on the buzzer a couple mm-hmm, times. A little bit. And he didn't get any, he lost by 200. That was because Ken bet right. But didn't get any double jeopardies. And that was that was just random, mm. essentially. He could have gotten, he had plenty of chances. He just didn't land on double jeopardies. And had he done that, I think he had a strong chance of pulling off game one. I still think it's going to be Holzhauer. Lizzie O'Leary is the host of What Next TBD here on your Slate stations. Justin Peters writes for Slate.com. Thank you, guys. Thank Thanks, you. And now the spiel. I do not know why Iran shot down that Ukrainian jet. I think they did shoot it down. That's what the evidence seems to be. But I can't explain why. Except I know this. I'm sure of this. That Twitter is not going to crack the case. There's lots of people on Twitter who think they just might. But I suspect they won't. Unless the black box has been given to at Empty Wheel or the Gaslight Nation podcast. We will have to wait on that. So let us wait. It's okay to wait. Really, let's wait. But I do know this also, that the administration will be able to solve the case, just as I have confidence that the president will have the full advice and support of the brightest members of his administration. I mean, I'm talking about the director of national intelligence, the deputy director of national intelligence, the Homeland Security secretary, the Homeland Security deputy secretary. He could ask the head of border patrol, the head of ICE, the State Department's Undersecretary of Arms Control could help with this. The Assistant Secretary of State for Europe should certainly be called up to get his or her advice. Possibly the Naval Secretary could weigh in. Those are all capable, serious, qualified people. Senate confirmation indicates that they are at least unobjectionable. These are no fly-by-night pikers, no seat fillers, the best and the brightest we have. No, I got to say, at this point, if I were clever or willing to revel in ambiguity, I'd leave it at that, right? And then later on the GIST Reddit page or the GIST of the GIST podcast, which is about the GIST, hosted by GIST superfans, they'd say, hey, did you pick that up? Do you know what Mike was doing there? All those positions he listed are unfilled. So I'll just say it right now and not be cute. All those positions are unfilled. And when we do have filled positions, it's normally the fifth stringers, except, you know, credit to you, Ben Carson, not at HUD, also you, Mnuchin, your original OGs, but we have sub-replacement level people running the show or having the show run all over them at State Defense, the National Security Council, and really importantly, we don't even have any people at so many of these other important jobs. Yes, we have people filling the position, but as one expert said, they are like the substitute teachers of international affairs. We don't have an assistant secretary for Western Hemisphere affairs. We don't have a coordinator for threat reduction programs. Well, I mean, that jet that was shot down, so many Canadian citizens, at least the president can talk with his ambassador to Canada. Oh, we have no ambassador to Canada. 
Well, if we go to war, I mean, you know, Trump prizes the military. What about that? Well, we have no assistant secretary of defense for international security affairs. Okay, but still, our fighting men and women will be ready, right? Well, there is no undersecretary for personnel and readiness. The Washington Post, as an act of public service, partnered with an outfit called the Partnership for Public Service. I I don't know. Maybe it was the first hit that came up in Google. But seriously, they have worked together to provide an important accounting of just how unaccountable the administration is. Unaccountable and absent. So there are over a thousand Senate confirmed positions. The Post and the Partnership for Public Service looked at 741, the really important ones, and found that in 168 of these positions, just no nominee, and 14 are awaiting nomination, and 48 have been formally nominated. This, by the way, is a much worse state than it has been for past presidents at this point in the administration. Or maybe if you're an anti-government deep state phobe, I think it's uh, a better state. Who knows? Who knows how they think or if they think? Because I really think that ignorance is what's guiding the president. He doesn't care and he doesn't know. Trump believes, to the extent he thinks about this at all, that it doesn't matter. Maybe, I don't know, maybe he thinks an acting staffer is good as a permanent staffer. It's just not. Let's take Ukraine, where infamously Trump could never get his act together to successfully oust Marie Yovanovitch. I mean, she was good, but she should serve at the pleasure of the president. She didn't please him, but he couldn't get anyone permanent to take her place. She was experienced and committed. She was replaced by Bill Taylor. Remember him from the House hearings? He seemed totally competent and, and also honorable, but he was just the acting ambassador. Didn't have the full faith of the president. By the way, as of eight days ago, he's gone. And now our ambassador to Ukraine is Christina Kevian. Kevian. Don't know. That's the point. I read her bio. She seems to have a very good resume. No reason to doubt she's not a serious, experienced, competent person. Has the president ever met her? Has anyone who knows and trusts the president ever met her? Isn't it better to have a person on the ground who you know, even if the people who Trump knows aren't usually the best people? But this is how it's supposed to work. The president has his charges. They swear an oath to the Constitution, and they're all working as one because the world is complicated, and you need to have your bureaucracy functioning, not freelancing. Thing is, they're not working as one. Thanks to Trump, in many cases, they're not working at all. I mean, it might be tempting to say, well, these substitutes are probably better than whatever Trump-approved alternative we would have gotten just by dint of the fact that they're Trump-approved. But to me, it at least symbolizes and perhaps realizes a great risk, the risk of a power vacuum. And it is a power vacuum born of neglect, ever so troubling when times turn deadly. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist. He has a question about the daily doubles. Why do they occur three times a show if they're daily? And how come you can more than double your money if you have less than a thousand bucks? And most importantly, what is Marcel Proust's remembrances of things past? The Gist. He traded in a box on the display floor for curtain number two. She had dental floss in her purse. He dressed as a pirate and turned a zonk into a successful donkey ride industry. Join us as we play Let's Make a Deal, 
the greatest of all time. The prize, an actual goat. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>